Amen, and thank you once again, Tim. And if you will, open your Bibles to the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 2. We're going to work through the entirety of chapter 2 in just a moment. Uh, Acts chapter 2. This is uh, the eighth in our Easter series. And uh, we have covered uh, 11 chapters uh, from the Gospel of John and then this one single chapter uh, from the book of Acts. And so we've taken substantial portions of Scripture each week. And that was intentional, not because I was in a rush uh, to get through these particular texts. It's because they tell us a story. It is the the story, uh, particularly concentrated on the last week of Jesus' life, and then uh, His uh, uh, resurrection after His death, and now continuing uh, into the day of Pentecost. And so it is a story that hangs together, that we need to see it as, as, as one picture. And so uh, Jesus very intentionally uh, came to Jerusalem uh, for the express purpose of doing that for which He had came, namely die at Calvary for our sins. And so even the resurrection is not... Uh, the end of the story. Uh, the story continues. In fact, it's, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the, the gospel story even extends back through the beginning of John all the way to the beginning of the Bible. In the beginning, God. But even before that temporal marker of creation, the gospel was in the mind of God in eternity past. And the story of the gospel will continue as we will be in the presence of our Savior for all of eternity. So it extends both ways into uh, eternity. And so we, we come and we kind of bookend our study with beginning with the triumphal entry and ending with the day of Pentecost. But I want you to understand the story extends both ways into eternity. And so, uh, we look at this uh, today and we want to know what happened to these apostles. What did God use them to accomplish? And and in a sense, how did these apostles that had proved themselves to be so dense and then ultimately they failed the Lord Jesus when the time of crisis came they became uh, the, the very uh, pillars that form the foundation of the church that we know now uh, 2,000 years later. And so uh, let's look uh, at this uh, final segment today and we will see uh, the arrival in all of His fullness of the promised Holy Spirit. Read with me, if you will, verses 1 through 5, first of all. We'll, since it is a longer text, we'll take it, we'll read it in segments. Verses 1 through 5. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them 
utterance. If you would, pray with me this morning. Father, we thank You for Your truth. We pray that You would take this truth and that You would apply it to our lives. We pray as believers for Your illumination to understand and for application. And then, Lord, again, we would pray that if an unbeliever hears this message today, the work of our Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary for our salvation, Lord, that you would indeed cut them to the heart and they would believe. Use this uh, for your glory. Receive it as worship from your people. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke opens this particular book and lets us know that it follows on the heel of his initial work, what we call the Gospel of Luke. And he says that he's writing once again to this individual that we know of as Theophilus. And he wants to continue to tell uh, the story of Jesus Christ from the time of his resurrection into his ascension and then beyond the story of the work of the apostles. He gives us uh, the record of this particular charge that Jesus gave to these disciples as he left the earth to ascend into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. And he tells them that you are going to receive power. And that's not a power, not some impersonal, inanimate force, but the power is the presence of a person who is the Holy Spirit. And He is going to come. And because He comes and He empowers those who receive Him, they are going to bear witness to Jesus Christ in the Jer- Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and even all the way to the ends of the earth. And so... Upon the ascension of Christ and this particular charge, uh, they go back uh, into Jerusalem. They leave this uh, mount called Olivet. Uh, They go back into Jerusalem. They're gathered together, and another 10 days essentially passes. So 50 days uh, after uh, the the Passover, uh, they are are gathered together. They're praying. They're they're gathered in the upper room and... And evidently there were about 120 plus there gathered that were believers in the, the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, they, they are praying and the Spirit of God comes upon them in a powerful way. He comes upon them in some sense uniquely, but in some sense in a way that is going to be universal for every believer from that day forward. The Holy Spirit was present uh, throughout the uh, Old Covenant, even preceding the Old Covenant, in that uh, we're told that the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. So God's Spirit has always been present in His world. He has always worked. He's always worked upon and through uh, the believer. I'm deeply convinced, given the nature of our fallenness, the uh, total inability of of the uh, unregenerate man, that even under the old covenant, those who believed God were born again. 
They were given a capacity they did not naturally have to believe the truth of a promised Savior. And so they were regenerate, but they did not receive the full measure, the full power, the full presence of God's Holy Spirit until this day of Pentecost. And so the Spirit arrives as Jesus had promised. Uh, In fact, when I began the preaching of this series, I did not anticipate uh, continuing into this uh, uh, final segment in Acts chapter 2. But as I studied and read, Jesus placed so much emphasis, and he he, uh, really was giving these instructions for the comfort of these disciples. I'm leaving. You can't come after me. I am very intentionally leaving you in the world. I'm not taking you out of the world. I'm leaving it, but you're staying. But I'm going to send one that is going to bear witness to me. He's going to work in you and among you and through you. And you're going to do far greater things than you could ever imagine. You're even going to do things that that are greater than what I have done in my incarnate ministry here upon the face of the earth. The disciples didn't get it. Even even just prior to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, their question was, are you ready to restore the kingdom now, Lord? Is, Is this the time of temporal greatness for you and for all of us? And Jesus essentially dismisses. That's not a question for you to know the answer to. I've got a program that I'm going to carry out in which you're going to be essentially intrinsically involved in But it's not a kingdom like you're still thinking about. There is going to be a kingdom. And it's going to be present among you. And it's going to be a powerful kingdom. But it's not going to be manifest in the way that you're thinking about. And so as they are gathered, uh, they again uh, add to their number. Judas having uh, killed himself, uh, they add one. So the number comes back uh, to 12 disciples. And so Pentecost arrives. They're gathered together presumably at this initial point still in that upper room and we are told that there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind now again notice the word like I don't think it was a wind I don't think objects were flying around the room Uh, yesterday was a a, a fairly uh, gusty day and I happened to stop by a a store and pick up something and had it in one of those, I think you call them t-shirt bags, little plastic bags with the handles. It was lying in the front seat of my car. And I opened the door and that sack was sucked out. And I started chasing after it. I'm sure y'all would have liked to have a video of me running around that parking lot trying to catch that stupid bag. And do you realize within about 10 seconds that thing got sucked up in the air, and I mean, it zipped. And I mean, it was 100 yards away from me before I realized what had happened. It was gone. And so I hope no police official or anything is hearing this confession and that I get arrested for littering. But that bag is in points unknown by now. So I don't think there were things flying around the room because of the wind. What they were saying, and it's those of you that have heard or maybe experienced the arrival of a tornado, I've always heard that phrase, it sounded like a freight train. It's a noise that shakes you to your core. And so God manifests himself, first of all, in an audible sign. They they hear this 
this sound that sounds like the rushing of the wind. And then they see have a visible sign there in verse 3. The tongues of fire that separate and rest on each one of those believers that are gathered there. In other words, not fire, but something that looks like fire. And again, fire has long been associated with purity. It's been associated with the presence of of God, and whether uh, this was a, some type of manifestation of the Shekinah glory, like uh, accompanied uh, Israel in the pillar and the, fi- uh, the, the fire and the cloud, uh, I don't know. It's just described as being something that appeared like fire, and all of us have sat around campfires and watched uh, the tongues of a campfire reach up into the night. And so we can kind of imagine what's going on uh, here. And so they, they see this. Uh, They see the visible sign, and then there's a spoken sign here described in verse 4. And they, and again assuming the larger number, the 120 plus, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And so they're gathered there. The Spirit has made His presence known in two forms. In, in, a, in a great sound, and then a, a great visual sign, fire and sound. And now the Spirit works in them that they begin to speak, and it's described as other tongues. That the Spirit of God gave them ability to speak in other tongues. Now we're going to see very clearly exactly what that is in just a moment. Uh, Luke is going to to explain uh, what that is, which gives us information not only to what it is, but to what it is not. And in our day, over uh, the course of the last hundred years, there's been a great deal of confusion uh, about this business of the gift of of tongues. And it seems to me to be a rather straightforward uh, matter uh, as uh, uh, revealed in Scripture. So, Uh, The Spirit descends, of course we've seen Jesus ascends to send, and then the Spirit descends in these various uh, powerful, uh, powerful signs. So, let's look a little further, let's pick up in verse 5, the Spirit empowers the preaching of those whom He has filled, okay? Let's read in verse 5. Now, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and uh, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. 
Let's just stop right there and, and, and look at this uh, explanation here. They are given the gift of being able to speak in languages that were already being spoken among the people who had come to Jerusalem to celebrate Pentecost. They were Jews of the dispersion and proselytes who had gathered from the various regions and they're listed there. I didn't count them, but there's quite a few regions there that are around that Mediterranean basin. They have come in. They're celebrating Pentecost, the, the Feast of the of First Fruits, and they are hearing that which is being spoken. Now again, I think the, the gift is, in, is, is through those who are speaking, and they are speaking in languages that are being understood as the native language of those gathered there. Okay, So my point in kind of emphasizing this is they weren't speaking some kind of gobbledygook that was not a part of some earthly language. Okay, uh, uh, We find at least a couple of other times in the book of Acts that the phenomenon was experienced and observed uh, by uh, others who would hear the gospel and it would be authenticated as a genuine work of the Spirit, a genuine conversion by this speaking in tongues. Other languages that were known, recognized, and understood by those who heard. And I believe, I, I'm deeply convinced that when Paul addresses it in 1 Corinthians 14, that already there had been uh, this desire to somewhat fabricate and duplicate the phenomenon of Pentecost by just lapsing into an unconscious, ecstatic type of speech that was as much disruptive as anything. And so Paul puts a stop to it, I believe, by saying, do it all you want to, but somebody needs to interpret. Somebody, there needs to be somebody there that if he's speaking uh, the, the language of those in Africa or those, the languages of uh, Arabia or wherever it happens to be, that somebody there reckon, oh, that's my language, I understand what you're saying. And I have on occasion. I have on occasion, and this is just what you hear, I have heard a number of people that have been doing mission work in foreign fields. And all of a sudden, the translation gets all botched up, and they realize they're not communicating very well. And the person speaking uh, is spoken to by the person hearing, and they simply say, I'm understanding what you're saying to me. I'm not God, I don't have to explain it, I'm just saying that, that I have heard very sober people say that they have experienced this type of phenomenon. Not, not frequently, I've never experienced it in my uh, mission work overseas, uh, and, but again, the phenomenon, the, the sign that manifested itself through the work of the Spirit in these believers, where they spoke a particular language that they did not previously know. In fact, the, the remark from those that had gathered around was that, uh, first of all, essentially, we might say it this way, well, who are those rednecks there just talk, talking, do, talking all this stuff? 
I mean, Galileans were just not typically held in high esteem. It was kind of the backwater of, of uh, the nation. And, and so they're not educated. How is it that these, these guys who basically probably spoke Aramaic, how are they speaking in this variety of language? And so uh, they're, they're amazed. And again, we see verse 8. And how is it we hear each of us in his own native language? That explains what was going on. That's the phenomenon. If you look down in verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, what are they telling? They are explaining the gospel. They're not talking about, well, th- now let me, let me show you how you can do this. Let, let me explain to you how you can get to this state and you can just kind of lose your mind and start babbling and foaming in the mouth and fl- flop on the floor like a fish and laugh like a hyena and bark like a dog. No. Let me tell you in a way that you can understand what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the Spirit empowers us to talk about, not the phenomenon of the Spirit empowering us. When the Spirit is at work, we want to talk about Jesus. We want to talk about the Gospel, not the phenomenon of being filled with the Spirit. And so, their indictment, and and, and, and listen, look at verse 13. Now, they're amazed and perplexed. These these uneducated Galileans, this bunch of fishermen, they're not a part of the academic elite. Kind of the same attitude that the the world has now. Uh, Who are these uneducated Christians to say anyone? We're We're the educated elite. We know what's best for your children. We know what's best for your business. We know what's best for your schools. We know what's best. How could you even speak an intelligent word? Nothing's changed very much, has it? So... Who are these guys? And so what do they do? They dismiss what they are saying, not just the phenomenon, but they, want, they need to dismiss what's being said by what? They're filled with new wine. Now, evidently they, they heard a loud noise, and then they heard this very powerful, exciting speech. Maybe it's easy enough to mistake it for those who've got a little buzz on Now, I've noticed at times, I've been out playing golf or even running uh, through a a neighborhood, and all of a sudden you start hearing a little little buzz. And then it gets a little louder. And then it gets a little louder, and maybe you'll hear a a voice with this real uh, loud laughter. And I go, ding, 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 ding. Those folks had just a little bit too much to drink. They're enjoying themselves just a little bit too much. And so maybe the phenomenon looked a bit or sounded a bit like those that were inebriated because it was, was so uh, vocal and bold and, 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 and loud because they were excited about what Jesus had done for them. Again, secondarily, what the Spirit was doing in them. But most importantly, they were excited about Jesus. Uh, one of the things sometimes when I, when I speak, uh, it's very difficult for me to not get loud because I get excited about telling people about Jesus Christ. Uh, it's just the way it works. And so, again, so they said they've been drinking too much. Well, let's look at Peter's explanation and let's read verses 17 uh, through 21. 
or excuse me, verses 14 through 21. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And it shall, and, and in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And even on my male servants and female servants. And in those days I will pour out my Spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes and the great and magnificent day and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So, Peter explains to them, again, he typically being the spokesperson, the one willing to step, step up and say something, even if it's wrong, but here he steps up and says something because he's right. He gets this one right. And so he speaks to them, and he, he basically, verse 14, let this be known to you, and give ear to my words. Shut up and pay attention. Yeah. Pay attention. I remember that was one of my, my dad's kind of little phrases. Whenever he would be explaining something. Pay attention. Peter's saying you need to pay attention. Now, I think Peter's being a bit humorous. When he addresses their objection. He says, nah, nah, we're not drunk. It's too early in the day. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. That'll come later. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But again, he, he just, he dismisses their dismissiveness. And let me tell you this. Without the work of the Spirit, all of our efforts will be rebuffed. People will defend their sin, they will dismiss the reality of their guilt and the judgment that is sure to come, and they will discredit the gospel and or its messenger. Okay, just remember that. There's always an excuse, apart from the work of the Spirit, well, you just don't understand, you know, my mama didn't do this, and my daddy did this, and, you know, my wife or my husband or my kids or whatever. There's always an excuse. There's always an explanation. There's always a reason that God's law and God's gospel doesn't apply to me. Well, you can't pay any attention to those redneck Galileans. They're already drunk. So you say that kind of thing, and you can dismiss their message, or at least it's an attempt to dismiss their message, to defend their own sinfulness, their own rebellion, to discredit that which they are explaining to you. And so Peter's corrective is, no, no, let me tell you, what you're seeing right now, look at verse 16, but this, what you're hearing and seeing, us standing and proclaiming this message of the gospel is what the prophet Joel spoke of. 
And you can go back to the Old Testament prophet of Joel, or probably a post-exilic prophet, a prophet uh, after uh, the uh, Babylonian captivity, speaking about the continuing sinfulness of uh, the nation of Judah. And so he warns of a judgment, but he also looks forward to a day in which God will pour his spirit out. And so, verse 17, Peter quotes Joel in this fashion, in the last days. Now, in my lifetime, there's been a, just an unbelievable fascination with end times issues, eschatology, prophecy. Uh, some of the best-selling books that can be broadly or loosely identified as Christian books, whether they be fiction or nonfiction, have dealt uh, with the issue of the return of Christ and the coming judgment and, and all of those things. We, we, we seem to be, beginning in kind of my teenage years, the mid-1970s, just absolutely obsessed with the idea of, of prophecy. And that's not altogether bad. It's in the Bible. So we ought to pay attention to it. But my point is this. The last days began in this day. Now, whether you look at it as beginning with the Incarnation, or you look at it at beginning with the Atonement, or you look at it as beginning with the Resurrection, or you look at it as beginning with the Day of Pentecost, they're kind of arguments for all, all of those kind of form a singular event in, in some sense. And so those events inaugurated an epoch of time that can be called the last days, the last working of God among the people of this world, moving from Old Covenant into New Covenant. Sometimes we'll call this, and I don't object to the, the, time, the term the church age, uh, but we're, we're in the last days, and a characteristic that Joel predicted, and Peter says, that time that Joel anticipated you're witnessing it, you're seeing it, you're experiencing it. And that is a widespread, uh, I, I hate to use the word universal, but universal pouring out of the Spirit uh, without discrimination on all flesh. Now, let me qualify that. He's speaking of those who believe. He's not saying that the Spirit of God equally and universally works in all men. He doesn't. But He does work universally in the lives of those who believe. When you hear the gospel and the Spirit of God works in you to regenerate you, when you believe, the Spirit of God comes and enjoys permanently to empower, to comfort, to illuminate, to convict, to do all types of ministry. And so, under the Old Covenant, the Spirit was present, but it seems as though the Spirit uh, came in great and powerful ways to unique individuals for particular times to accomplish particular things according to the purpose of God, but did not remain permanently powerfully dwelling upon each and every member of the New Covenant community. Under the New Covenant, every believer has the law written upon their heart. That's what the prophet Jeremiah uh, spoke of in describing the new covenant, the covenant that is going to be uh, uh, 
uh, signified and, and the sign of the new covenant is the working of the Spirit, the, the circumcision made without the hands of men, the circumcision of the heart by the work of the Spirit. Now, that next section of verse 17, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and then the visions and the dreams. I, I don't have time to just go through all of the excesses and, and errors. Men and women are gifted to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the New Testament very specifically and very clearly limits the office of the elder or the pastor or the overseer or the bishop or what in most of my life has been called the preacher. That is reserved for a man. Okay? Uh, now, there's, there's even continuing discussions about what prophecy is, what it is not. I don't have time to really get into it. But remember this. Throughout the Bible, it seems like while there were elements of prophecy that foretold the future as a warning, typically a warning of judgment and then a promise of deliverance. But more than anything else, prophecy was involved with calling people to repentance. That was the primary role of the prophet, calling the nation of Israel, uh, calling people in general to repentance. And so here we are seeing that men and women are gifted by the Spirit to call, to announce a warning and call people to repentance. Now, again, the role of the elders reserved for uh, a man. The, the, the authoritative instruction in the life of a New Testament church is reserved for a man. But again, women have a role to play to tell others about Jesus. Now, visions and dreams. Now certainly, Old Testament, New Testament, we have examples of what it might even be called revelatory dreams. That uh, uh, Paul is given information in, in a dream. Other New Testament, Old Testament figures are, are given information in, in visions and, and dreams. Um, God can use anything He wants to use, anytime He wants to. Let me, let me tell you something. If, if you go out and you engage in some kind of idiotic behavior and you have a restless night and you wake up remembering a dream in which uh, you know, you're injured or you're, you're, you're killed or you, you uh, uh, remember you offended somebody and you know, you go, you, what, God convicts you, so be it. So be it. But if you're, if you're building your Christian life on the basis of your dream life, you're setting yourself up for horrific failure. I think that as we've come down in these 2,000 years, and, and, and we kind of have a record of those that claim great visions, who would include people like Joseph Smith, the, the founder of the Mormon church, they, they tend to create more problem than, than they're worth if, if you're looking at them as authoritative revelation from God. But here's the thing. Men and women should be visionary and have dreams of God working in them and using them to take the gospel throughout our world. It's, it's amazing how many times you hear of young ladies being willing to, to set aside the, the development of a home and all the things that maybe they would desire to go into a foreign land 
and to preach the gospel. Why? Because they have a vision of being used by God to share the gospel with people who have not heard and who do not believe. And so God is going to use male and female in the age of the Spirit, in the time of the New Covenant, in these last days. The Spirit is poured out on all believers. Now, he gets into a second type of phenomenon. Okay, First, he talks about the work of the Spirit in the heart and mind of the believer that begins at their conversion, begins at their new birth. The Spirit stays with them until the day they die. Uh, that is the presence of God uh, in their lives. And then Peter goes on to say, in these last days, I will show wonders in heaven and the earth and in blood and fire and smoke and so forth. Well, guess what? God did that. You go back and look at the record of the crucifixion, the, the record of uh, the uh, resurrection. Guess what? There were earthquakes. There was darkness. There were all kinds of things that went on. And so uh, it's hard to know if what's being described here is kind of standard language available to Old Testament prophets. Remember, he's quoting an Old Testament prophet, Joel. That whenever great upheaval was coming upon the nation of Israel, typically it was described in terms of natural phenomenon. It's going to be a great war. It's going to be a great famine. It's, it's going to be this or that. But the description is that of natural upheaval. That may be what's going on here. Or it could also be speaking of as we move towards the last epoch or the last uh, aspect of the last days that we will see greater natural phenomenons. Uh, uh, I, I'm not going to attempt to explain how the, all of these come apart, uh, but uh, greater earthquakes, greater wind and uh, rain problems, tornadoes and so forth and, and so on. It's very possible that this could be some type of literal fulfillment that will come, notice there in verse 20, before the day of the Lord. Again, uh, Old Testament theme, uh, Joel speaks of it, other prophets speak of it. The day when God judges His enemies and vindicates His people. And so the New Testament picks it up. The Apostle Paul specifically in 1 Thessalonians 5 comforts the Thessalonians... Don't be deceived in thinking the day of the Lord has come. Here's, there's, there's different things that are going to happen before this unique and final day. What is the day of the Lord? Well, again, the day that Christ shall return, what's He going to do? In the resurrection, He's going to vindicate the believer. And then He's going to bring judgment on those who remain hostile to Him. And so uh, there may be great natural phenomenological things that just are overwhelming uh, in those final days of the last days. And then verse 21, the great good news, that the gospel and salvation is not reserved for ethnic Israel. It really never was. 
It, it really never was. The, the, the purpose of Israel was to be a light into the Gentile world, that they could see the greatness of the God of Israel and desire to know this particular God. And so here again, that God is going to work uniquely among the people of the world, and again, certainly symbolized in this great uh, diverse people group uh, that, that hear the phenomenon of the, the languages and hear the gospel. And so he says this, that salvation is available to everyone. We live in a day when everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, like any term, any concept in Bible, in the Bible, we have to understand what is meant by what is said. What's the question? What does it mean to call upon the Lord? I mean, is it just, uh, uh, you know, Jesus, you know, be going down the road and uh, a dog runs in front of you and you whip the wheel and you're about to run into a ditch. Did you go, Jesus? Is that calling upon the Lamb of the Lord? Are we saved? Is it just simply saying Jesus is Lord? Is it saying a prayer? I would submit to you that it is a calling upon the Lord, upon hearing the gospel, being convicted of our sin recognizing Him as the only remedy for our sin and our only hope for eternal salvation and believing that He is indeed our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not simply verbal, but it is, as Paul would explain it in Romans 10, it is believing in the heart, confessing with the mouth, Jesus as Lord, because we have heard the gospel message. And our faith has come by hearing this great message of the gospel. Well, let's move forward into verse 22. Peter is going to explain uh, uh, what is going on. Uh, he's going to uh, indict uh, these that are gathered around them. And he is going to defend uh, his indictment. Let's read in, beginning in verse 22 through verse 36. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for He is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you, you yourselves are seeing and hearing. 
For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And so, Peter moves from the explanation of what they're seeing and hearing to the reason for what they're seeing and hearing. He turns now from the working of the Spirit to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. This Jesus of Nazareth. And he begins with his indictment and he says to them that this man Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, that you have no excuse for your rejection of Him. That God gave you ample evidence of who He was through the mighty works and the signs that He did. He did them among you. You've heard them. Many of you saw them. And therefore you are without excuse for your attitude, for your rejection of this Lord Jesus Christ. But this Jesus was handed up or delivered up according to God's definite plan and foreknowledge. Now, why did Jesus come into our world? Why was He born and placed in the manger in Bethlehem? Because God had a plan that was in His heart and mind before all worlds were created that His Son would enter His world at a particular time and place in history and that He would be rejected by men and He would be hung on a cross as satisfaction for the wrath of God. That He would atone for sin according to a definite plan. It was not accidental. It was all intentional. Jesus came for a singular purpose. Did He come to heal people? Yes. Did He come to preach the gospel? Yes. But His primary purpose for coming, there were others that could heal the sick. There were others that could preach the gospel. But only one man, whose name is Jesus Christ, could die on the cross at Calvary for our sins. So Jesus came according to God's plan that was set in stone and put in motion when Jesus entered our realm. But that's not the whole picture. Jesus came, and He did, and everything happened according to God's plan. But you killed Him. You killed Him. As in a number of instances in the Word of God, the writer lays down God's sovereign, divine plan and puts right beside it man's responsibility and he offers no explanation as to how God can be absolutely sovereign and man absolutely responsible. Those men who crucified Jesus Christ were guilty of his murder. They were guilty of rejecting him. They stood before God at their death if they remained in an unrepentant state and God condemned them even though even Judas himself was a part of God's plan. I don't fully understand it. I will not fully understand it in this life. I simply know that it is true that Jesus went just as had been promised, predicted, and planned and these heinous Wicked men made a choice that they did what they wanted to do, namely live in rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they wanted to get Him out of their midst. They wanted to shut Him up. They wanted to stop the movement, and they killed Him. Jew 
and Gentile. And so Peter, this man that could not confess Jesus Christ before a lowly slave girl, is now empowered by the Spirit. He stands before those that were murderous on 50 days prior, wanting to kill Jesus Christ. And he says, you're guilty of killing the one you've been looking for. You're guilty of killing the son of David. You're guilty of killing your Messiah. You have claimed that you are longing for the day of Messiah. Let me tell you this, you killed him. You put him on a cross you're guilty. And so, Peter goes on to explain, you crucified him, but here's the deal. You didn't finish him. That wasn't the end of the story. God raised him up. Again, the truth of the gospel is born witness, it's testified to, it's proven by the great reality. The tomb was empty. Jesus was raised from the dead. Again, if you want to shut these Rube Galileans up, all you got to do, go to the graveyard, get the body, and bring it, and say, listen, these guys are out of their minds. Here's Jesus' body. They said He's been raised from the dead. Here's the body. You stop it in its tracks. But He confessed the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. And then he, and then he proves it. He gives an, an apologetic. He defends and proves that this is what the Scriptures had anticipated all along. He appeals to uh, Psalm 16, first of all. And he, verse 27, David looked forward to the day in which one of his descendants would not be abandoned to the grave, that he would be placed in the ground, but he would not be abandoned, and he would not be long, there long enough where he could suffer decay or corruption. Again, we have a great many wonderful funeral homes that do beautiful jobs preparing people for, de for death, for uh, burial, but their work will not stop the corruption of death. And let me tell you something, the only way to halt the decay that is normative in death is you raise that body from the dead. Why did the Holy One not see corruption? God raised Him from the dead. And so Peter asserts that Jesus was raised from the dead, which is what David expected and what David predicted in his prophecy. And then he goes on and expands on that thought, and he kind of combines the Davidic promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 and again the, the, the promise kind of reminded of in, in Psalm 132. He, Peter says in verse 30, David was a prophet. He knew that God had sworn to him that one of his descendants would be on the throne and he foresaw and he spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Here is your revered King David that believed and prophesied about this event that I'm describing to you. Okay, Remember, speaking to Jews, appealing to their scripture, appealing to their king, saying, listen, Jesus was raised from the dead and this is what the prophets were looking forward to. This is what they anticipated. And so, Jesus was not abandoned to the grave. And that Jesus is unique, and notice the, 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 the last section here, Psalm 110, verse 34 and 5, the Lord said to my Lord, that's David speaking. David is describing a descendant as his Lord. Very unnatural way of speaking of one who is coming 
after you. David recognized the unique nature of the son that God would raise from the dead. And so kind of a, a linchpin there is in verse 29. And as I said, if, if you want to shut them up, just go get the body. And Peter seems to be wanting to challenge them to that. Verse 29, now David died and he's buried in his tombs right around the corner. You can go to his tomb. In fact, you could probably go in and find the remains. They're probably in an ossuary there, have been preserved. David's bones. But let me tell you something, you can't go to Jesus' tomb and find his remains because he's been raised from the dead. Very real sense, Peter very pointedly lays down the gauntlet. Go get the body. You can go get the remains of David. You can't get the remains of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's been raised from the dead. And so verse 36, he comes back with the indictment. You hear this? You be clear? You understand this? I want you to be absolutely certain about what I am saying to you that Jesus Christ is both Lord and Christ and you're guilty. You crucified Him. He is dropping the hammer on them. And then we come to the, the, the work of the Spirit as He works in the world. Well, what did Jesus say about the Spirit? The Spirit's going to come. He's going to work in the believer. And he's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Look at verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off and for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. One of the ways that I pray for preaching is that upon preaching the gospel, the work of Christ on the cross for our sins, I would pray that men and women and boys and girls would be cut to the heart. There's one thing, or there's many things, that I can't do. And I can't cut to the heart. That is the work of God's Holy Spirit. That is God's work and God's work alone. The Bible doesn't explain here or really any other way. It describes this work in a number of different ways. Uh, it talks about Lydia, that God opens Lydia's heart to believe the gospel. Whatever it means is that God does something in the hearts and minds of those who hear the gospel and their question is, what do we do about this? How do we respond? What do we do? And Peter's Reply, and it's not an exhausted commentary and not an exhausted systematic on what it means to be converted. He says, repent and be baptized. Turn from your sin. In turning from unbelief to Jesus Christ, turn to belief in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin and identify publicly with this act of baptism. And this holds true until that day of the Lord, until His return. That this promise of salvation of all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It is good both today and for every day forward that all who repent and believe will be saved. All who genuinely come to Christ will be saved. 
And so the church is formed and it grows to 3,000 plus here as a result of this one sermon. And then finally this morning, verses 41 through 47, or 42 through 47, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayers and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all and all and any who had need. And day by day attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You know why people were being saved? They were hearing the gospel. They were hearing the testimony about Jesus Christ. And so the Spirit of God that came in His fullness at Pentecost is still at work creating the church. He uses the means of the Word of God. There in verse 42, that uh, sentence there, I've broken down, I think, a number of times in the course of the 25 years that I've preached into four and five part series on the nature of the church. What does the Spirit of God call God's people to do? Well, very simply, to be in fellowship with each other, to break bread together, to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the doctrine of the Word of God, and to pray. That's the work of the Spirit. The Spirit creates the church, and the Spirit compels the church to engage in these ordained means to come to an ordained end. The growth of God's church. We're told about the unity of the church, the way they shared. We don't have time to get into all of that. But simply, the apostles were obedient to the command that Jesus gave to them in telling people about Jesus. He would send them from Jerusalem into the known world in the power of the Spirit with the message of the Gospel. And from that day forward, Word and Spirit would work together to continue the building up of the church, the creating of the church, the including of the church of unbelievers, that, that, the, that, that believers both then and now are cut to the heart and they repent of sin and they believe this gospel. They call upon the name of the Lord and they're saved. And this work of the Spirit that began so powerfully at Pentecost, one of our great hopes is it still continues today. The Spirit is within us. The Spirit is among us. The gospel is true. God still desires that men and women, boys and girls, come to repentance. That they come to that repentance through the proclamation of Jesus Christ, whom God raised from the dead. He died in our place for our sins. And He lives at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Again, sending the Spirit to convict, to illuminate, to work amongst us, to work in our lives so that we might come to know our resurrected Savior. Again, the promised Holy Spirit, the fullness of the Spirit comes upon the church at the day of Pentecost. And He remains with us. And He will remain with us until the day Jesus returns. Pray with me. Father, we thank You once again for Your truth. We pray now that Your Spirit would do as Your Spirit has done since the beginning of creation to work 
and to create. I pray that He would create faith in the heart of those who do not believe. I pray that He would nurture faith in the hearts of those who do believe. God, where there are those that need to be cut of heart, I pray that You would work that. Where there are those that need to be comforted of heart, I pray that You would work that as well. God, we have done our best to accurately, to rightly divide and proclaim Your truth. We know that You're faithful. We know Your Word does not return void. How we pray that You would work using this on this day. In Jesus' name we pray.